Well, as Pastor Gary said, yes, it is September and summer is coming to end. But I want to say good morning to you and good morning to many, many, many of you who are going to watch online because you're still going to brave traffic in about 24 hours coming back from the cottage. Uh, we're glad that you're joining us here on this long weekend. And this today is the last in our whole summer series called uh, We the people. If you've got a Bible this morning, I'd love you to turn to John, the book of John, the gospel of John, uh, in the first chapter. Physically, virtually, we're good with both. We'd ask you to do that. And also, you online, wherever you might be today. Our series, We the People, if you really have been intently listening, has been a call. It has been actually an authoritative pronouncement. It has been a relational invitation, a rallying cry. It has been a summons for healing and for freedom. This summer actually has been about one word, choice. And the question before us as we end this summer series and consider what Pastor Gary just prayed about as we move into a new year, what is the choice that is before us and still is here? What has been the decision? What have we heard out of God's written word? What has God been saying this whole summer to us as a family that is we the people? And what has he been saying to you? It is Jesus who's been saying these things. That if you truly know me and you love me and you actually walk with me for I truly am both Savior and Lord, the call or the choice and the rallying cry this summer is that all of us make the decision to become what we already are. Can I say that again? The whole summer has been a rallying cry for us to accept what has already happened in us to become who we already are. It was one spiritual thinker who wrote these words, You cannot tell me who I am, and I cannot tell you who you are. But if you do not know your identity, who gets to identify you? What a question that is. Think about it, even on this lazy long weekend. Who gets to form you this morning? Who gets to center you? Who gets to affirm you? Who gets the final say about the core of who you are? Is it you? You've been taught your whole life that actually it is you. Is it others? Is it family? Is it the worldview of our culture? Is it economics? Is it sexuality? Is it gender? Is it skin? Is it culture? Is it family? Is it lost dreams? Is it expectations? Like who has the final say over you? Now, all of what I've just mentioned, there's no doubt, psychologists would tell you is identified and connected to identity. But for we who are followers of Jesus, the truths that are deepest to us and highest over us that affect, and here's the key phrase, and rule everything, is this. Our identity is found in Jesus Christ. See, this summer has been both proclamation and invitation to discern what God has been saying we are in Christ because of Christ and through Christ. It has been a summer where we have been praying, listen closely, that there would be an all-out destruction of lies held by many of us by God's written word, given to us by his living word, and that there would be a growing new holiness, new love, new right godly living, what the Bible actually calls just a normal Christian life. 
When meeting Jesus Christ and choosing to live under his scriptures, we get new ears to hear and new eyes to see and new hearts to discern what is real, what has already happened, what is happening now, and what is guaranteed to happen. It was the father of communism, Karl Marx, that said these words. He says, philosophers spend their time interpreting the age, but the real call is to actually change it. Now, he was right, but he had the wrong answer. The answer is found in encountering the living God through Jesus. And if there is one little summary passage that brings home every truth we have explored and prayed over and wrestled with all summer, and also that idea that Jesus Christ actually is the longing answer for the world, it's found in John chapter 1. Here's what's just happened in the passage. John the Baptist has roared onto the scene out of the desert. Thousands have been baptized. He has looked at his cousin Jesus. He has proclaimed him the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He has now baptized Jesus. And as John the Baptist is proclaiming the truth about someone else, that's Jesus, one person is listening in particular. You may know him as the apostle or the disciple called Andrew. Andrew is the one that gets the ball rolling that will spill from 1 to 2 to 5 to 20 to 120 to 3,000, 5,000, now to billions of us even now. It says in John chapter 1 verse 40, these words, read with me. Andrew, that Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two that heard what John the Baptist had said uh, who, who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that's the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at Peter, he was called Simon at that point, and said, Simon, son of John, you now will be called Peter. So Peter and Andrew have now started to follow Jesus. And notice what Jesus did. Right when Jesus encounters this young man named Simon, he changes his name. I decide, because I am who I am, to give you a new start. I give you a new individuality. I change your very nature on the spot. I choose to give you a new identity that you yourself cannot give yourself. Never forget, in this culture, names were not just what was top, you know, top 50 on Twitter for this year. Names were individual forming. They were destiny forming. Your name could form and most likely did form who you became. And Jesus comes into this unexpected situation to a guy who's a fisherman who, by the way, is fooling around with fighting against the Roman authorities as an underground guerrilla zealot. He walks into this man's so-called normal life, and he says, I change you at your core. See, when Jesus comes into any life and calls any of us out of what our normal is, he does radical life-changing, identify-repairing at the deepest level. But Jesus has not just come for a few, he's come for more. Look at verse 43. It says, the next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Most of us read that verse and just move on, but we shouldn't. This is not Jesus saying, well, I'm really bored, you know, with this place. I don't, I don't know what to do with my life. I have no purpose. I, I'm like an artistic soul that just want. no, no. This has, this has grand purpose. He stops and he purposes to go to Galilee for a reason. It's a three-day uh, journey, by the way, down to this place. And he's going to meet very specific people that his father has assigned him to connect with. 
It says that finding Philip in the same verse, he said to him, follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the same town of Bethsaida. Follow me, by the way, in Greek doesn't just mean once, like follow me, let's keep going. It's like keep on following me. You now will become my disciple. Now we have no clue about the conversation between Philip and Jesus. But what we do know is this. He says yes. And he gets unbelievably excited. And he feels the absolute need to tell others. See, his life has been changed in a very good upside-down way. And so now he, like Peter and Andrew, are called by Jesus. He is changed by the very presence of Jesus. And now he is compelled to tell others. So what does he do? Here's where we get interesting, connects to the whole summer. He runs to his friend named Nathaniel. Now, Nathaniel had not heard about Jesus that we know about, but here's what we do know about him. He knew his Bible. Nathaniel knew his Old Testament. He knew exactly what the Messiah was supposed to look like, and he knew, of course, the Messiah was supposed to come from Bethlehem. So Philip runs up to his longtime friend and shares something that probably Nathaniel was not expecting at all that day. It's like some of you are about to hear from the living God, and you said, this is a long weekend. I'm not going to hear from him. Watch out. He doesn't take long weekends, by the way. So at this moment, what happens? Philip finds Nathaniel, and he says this, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and whom the prophets also wrote. His name is Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of Joseph. Nate, this is the guy. This is the one that our whole race has been waiting for for thousands of years. I mean, this is the one that the whole Old Testament was a foreshadow about. It's picture, preparation. His name, by the way, is Jesus. Doesn't that make sense? It's, you know, Joshua, a savior. He's from Nazareth, and he's, he's the son of Joseph. Son of Joseph is like a last name, like Thompson, okay? And so he runs up, and he's unbelievably excited. You ever had an experience where you are like, like, this is so unbelievable, and you go talk to your spouse or friends, and you say, well, I, you know, I'm really excited because I, I love this car, or I, I want to date this person, or you won't believe what just happened to me, or I love this TV show, and you're really passionate, and you're sharing your life, and you're very animated, and they do this? Yeah, not so much. And you're like, what? Come on. Like, this is so, and you're like, no, I'm, can I watch some TV now? I'm really not into that. This is exactly what happens between Nathaniel and Philip. Philip runs up and basically tells him that the one that they've been praying for for millennia has shown up, and Nathaniel's response is this, Nazareth? <clears throat> Could anything good come from that place? Now, you got to understand why he reacts this way. Cana is Nate's hometown. It's only four miles away from Nazareth. And, oh, just so you know, there's a rivalry between the towns. It's sort of like saying, you know, Jesus came from Pickering and we all go from Ajax. Really? Mm, not so much. Okay, just saying. And if you're from Whippy, you dismiss us all. That's all I want to say about that. So there's, there's rivalry. But, but actually... I found out this week that lots of people hated Nazareth. And I never understood why until I started reading more. See, right beside Nazareth was a place called Sephorus, which housed a huge garrison of Roman soldiers. And so, catch this, this is significant. Much of the time, Nazareth was full of occupying Roman soldiers that all the Jews hated anyways. These soldiers, though very disciplined, were known also for violence, vice, and immorality. 
And so this would be like someone coming to you today and say, I have such good news. Do you know that the Son of God is come and he was born in Las Vegas? And we're like, really? Las Vegas? Because that's not where I expect him to come from. So Nathaniel, as a good religious Jew, says, I don't think so. Here's Philip's response. Brilliant. Okay. Come and see. Come and see. Some of us who've done church for a while have this experience. We're praying for like 5, 10, 15 years for a relative or a friend finally to come to church. We've been working our whole life because we know, we know that there's such good news in Jesus. And so finally, unexpectedly, maybe they say, yeah, I'm going to come. And now you're all intense, right? Because you're like, that, those parking people better just smile. And then when my friend comes in, those greeters, like, oh, on fire. And, 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 you know, the worship team, like, it better, oh, and John, like, you, you're not Jesus, but you better be close. Like, I, I right? Why? Because we are, we've worked so hard for this one and a half hour moment. Is that wrong? No. Do we believe in excellence? Of course we do. Are we working on it all the time? But, oh, let's remind each other. Who are we bringing our friends and family to? C4 or Jesus? Oh, see, Jesus is always on. Jesus knows everything, and Jesus never, ever fails. So Philip doesn't get into a 15-point apologetic debate with his friend. Well, actually, it is Jesus, and let me tell you why. No, he says, no problem. It's right over there. Then it happens. It's sort of the moment in moments. Jesus sees Nathanael approaching, and this is what he said to Nathanael. Can you imagine someone meeting you for the first time? Uh, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Not, hi, how are you? It's nice to meet you. He walks up and says, you're an honest guy. But not just an honest guy. It's, It's deeper than this. See, to a Jewish ear, this is profoundly significant. It would speak volumes to Nathanael. Why? Well, see, he references him as an Israelite and says there's no deceit in him. One of the fathers of the Jewish people, his name was Jacob. His name was changed by God, and he was called later Israel. He had 12 sons, 12 tribes. Now, here's the point. Jacob was known as a liar. Jacob was called a man full of deceit. So this is how Jesus really says this. He says, here in front of me is an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob. Now, this will matter in about two and a half minutes. This is Nathan's response. Do you notice Nathaniel doesn't deny it? How interesting. He says, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, well, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, using spiritual gifts like words of knowledge, Jesus says, oh, I know you. I know everything before I showed up. I saw you sitting under a fig tree. Now, can you imagine the moment? Where Nathaniel, like his mouth drops, his eyes are open, he's staring at Jesus. He cannot believe that Jesus knew him. Now here's what fig tree means in the Bible. Two symbolic meanings and one literal. It can mean place of peace. It can mean your house. Or it can mean, everyone ready? A fig tree. Okay. Now. We don't know which this means. So this means Jesus comes up and says, I saw you sitting in a place of peace, or I actually saw you sitting in your house, or I literally saw you in a fig tree. When you read uh, non-biblical Jewish sources, rabbis told men to sit under large trees once a day to read the scriptures. So this is not an uncommon thing. 
And so Jesus comes up, and here's what we miss. Almost every scholar I read this week says that Nathaniel just wasn't sort of having like a Starbucks under a tree. It's deeper than that. Nathaniel actually had an encounter with God in that place. And Jesus shows up and says, oh, hey, oh, I not only saw you in that space and place, ready? I even know what you said to God. And Nathaniel's like, who are you? Because I was praying by myself, and, and, and whether he was reading the Bible or thinking about John the Baptist's message, Jesus shows up, and he begins to do something that is unbelievably powerful. See, he not only knows Nathaniel's identity, he knows he's a man without guile. He also knows what is going on between a person and his God. And Jesus is basically declaring this. Listen to the identity power behind this. I have come to meet you in your place of study. I have come to make you peace. I have come to to be, I have come to be your fig tree. You are going to sin under me. I am coming home because I am now your home. Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you, you are, you're the son of God and, and you're the king of Israel. Now, that's a shocking response. He says, you are the son of God and the king of Israel. But see, Nathaniel was a real seeker. He'd been looking and talking to God his whole life. And so now the God he'd been praying to a few hours earlier is now in front of him in flesh. And here's what he says. You're the son of God. Now, any Jewish person would get this. You call someone the son of God, you actually are saying he is God. Because there's only one God. If you got the DNA of God, you're God. So Nathaniel looks at this guy and says, this 30-year-old, and says, not only are you God, he says, you're the king of Israel. You're my king. Since I'm an Israelite and I'm saying you're in charge, I'm your slave now. What would you have of me? Jesus' response is so powerful. Jesus looks and he says this. He says, you're believing because I, I, I saw you under a fig tree and knew what you were. No, no. You're going to see much greater things than that. And at that moment, Jesus meets Nathaniel right where he's at. And ties the whole Jacob thing in the next verse. 2,000 years earlier, Jacob has just stolen his brother's birthright. Jacob deceives his dying father with his, his mom's help. Dysfunctional family, 101. His brother now is trying to murder him. He is on the run. He is now in now what we call modern Syria. He is exhausted. He uses a stone for a pillow because he has nothing. His brother's trying to murder him. He's terrified and exhausted. He puts his exhausted head down on that stone to sleep. And in Genesis 28, the whole world would be changed forever. It says, and he dreamed. Everyone ready? And a stairway was set on the ground and it reached all the way to the sky. Angels of God were going up and down it. Then God was right before Jacob. And he said, I am God, the God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac. I am giving you the ground on which you're sleeping to you and your descendants. And then he says this, Jacob woke up from his sleep and said, God is in this place. And I did not even know it. And he was terrified and he whispered in awe, oh, incredible, how wonderful, holy. 
This, he declares, this is God's house. This place is a gate of heaven. And Jacob, when he got up first thing in the morning, took that stone he'd used for a pillar, and he stood it up and made it a memorial pillar. That's where we get the word Ebenezer from, just for you people who like stuff like that. And poured oil over it. And he christened the place and called it, what is it? Say it loud. Bethel, God's house. Jesus says, you think what Jacob experienced was amazing? You think that that grand encounter where our people got their real identity? No, no, you've got no clue. That was life-altering, yes, identifying, affirming, but that's a foreshadow for everything. And then he says this, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open up, Nathaniel, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He says to Nathaniel, The gap between heaven and earth is so massive because of sin, but I am the ladder, and I am the bridge. The thing Jacob experienced was preparing the world for the guy who's standing in front of you, and angels are going to ride up and down me. Angels won't save you. You don't have the ability. Your ethnicity or religiosity won't do it, but I will do it because I am the bridge between heaven and earth. You want to see life changed? You're looking at him. Nathaniel, as you enter into relationship with me, your vision will broaden, and I will move heaven and earth for you. I will die for you. I will deal with the Father's justified wrath. I will make mockery and strip the devil of his power over you. I will conquer death, and like Jacob, I will give you a new name, a new purpose, a new identity, and I will do all this for you, and I will move all of heaven and earth for you, Nathaniel, and you, sir, you will become Bethel yourself. You will become a house of God. See, here's the point as we end this series. If you're a Christian here this morning, whether you're 16 or 12, you're 26, 40, 50, 80, or anything in between or above or below, you already are Nathaniel. You are Andrew. Your name was Simon, and he has changed your name to Peter, and you already are Philip. The call of the summer is to know what God has already done in you and become what you already are. This is the heartbeat of the whole call that we as Christians would turn to Jesus fully, unconditionally, and without fear, and choose to become what he's already done in us. See, what Nathaniel was experiencing that morning is already our reality. And so what I want to do as we end this summer is this. For us and you watching online, I want to go over every single truth that has been spoken this summer over each one of you and ask you, do you believe it? Don't disconnect. I see heads going down. Oh, stop. Do you believe this? Do you live out of this? Do you choose to root your identity and what Jesus has done and declared over you, or do you let yourself or others identify you? Because you do live, the governance system of your life lives out of your identity. And if Jesus is not the grand former of your identity, worldliness, sin, or things that will pass away will form you. And that will be a wasted Christian life, not a normal Christian life. Here's what's been declared by many different voices this summer. It has been declared over you that you are not alienated or estranged from God. 
that you are no longer an enemy of God, and that you are, you are not unforgiven. You are not owned by death anymore. You are not owned by your sinful struggles. They don't identify you, and you are definitely not owned by Satan. This is what Jesus declares over you afresh today, just like he did with Peter and others. You are, because of Jesus, forgiven forever. As I shared this summer, never forget in all of eternity, all of eternity, God the Father will look at the nail marks of Jesus and perpetually forgive us even while we're in heaven because his son's work is eternal. That's an amen moment, by the way. You're forgiven. Don't believe you're not. You are forgiven. You are not owned by Satan no matter what he says to you. You are without blemish before God. You are reconciled to God. You are free from accusation. Because of Jesus, you're seated with him above all evil. Because of Jesus, you are a saint at this moment. Because of Jesus, you've been given grace and peace between each other and God. You are included in Christ. You've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing that is found in Jesus. Because of God and God alone, you have been chosen, called, elected, and foreknown even before you were born. You have been adopted into a family that you did not deserve to be adopted into, but lovingly God did it because he is love. You are a child of God this morning. You are a son and daughter of the Most High King. You are part of a new family, and you are redeemed. You have been bought out of darkness. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are identified by this mark. You have been tattooed on your soul by God. You are made in his image. Now, every person's made in the image of God, but when you meet Jesus, the idea of image takes on its fullest form. You've been baptized into Jesus' death. You've been baptized into his resurrection, and nothing can remove you. You are Bethel. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You've been bought with a high price. You have guaranteed eternal life. You aren't big enough to push him out of your life. He loves you just too much. You are his possession. We are all equal before the cross. We are justified and we are dead to the demands of the law. We've been crucified in Christ and we are no longer slaves to sin. We do not have to give in to sin. The choice is now given to us again. We are willing slaves to Jesus Christ. We are loved by Jesus. And as Jack said time and time again last week, our acceptance and our security is in the love of God and nothing else. This summer has been an invitation for this whole church to accept what God has already done. And as one author said, to, to, to claim our belovedness. And yet, like Jacob, so many that sit here week after week and watch online, you are more like Jacob than you are like Peter or Nathaniel. You don't even know how close God is in our community. You are the person who lives life and is deeply spiritual and even Christian, but you would not declare, oh my goodness, holy, awe, awestruck, God is really near me in this place. As you end this summer and you prepare for the new season of ministry, one of the great prayers for some of you should be, Oh God, meet me like you did Jacob, so I will know how close heaven and earth is, so I will know what you are up to in me and in others.
We need more people to be moved to the place where they are in awe of the presence and nearness of God. Because though we are a church, this season is most definitely in our church like Bethel. This is an invitation for no more person in our church to live with accusation and lies. But to say, I know who I am. I know what is done. Because here's the last thing I end with. Ready? Here it is. You can't give away what you do not have. And you cannot give away what you have not experienced. You cannot give away what you do not have. And you cannot give away what you have not experienced. Do you notice that Andrew and Philip when they encountered Jesus and were radically changed by him, the the thing they had to do is run and tell others not only about the intellectual idea of Jesus, but actually introduce them to the person that had changed them. See, the more you walk closely to Jesus and the more you choose to embrace truth in your life about what God has done to you, the more you will be able to say with confidence and God-given authority, Jesus has done this for me and I now offer this to you. But if you have not experienced Jesus, how can you give it away? How can you give him away? How can you introduce people? Even as a Christian, your experience quotient, which is true biblical knowing, will either limit or empower you to greater evangelism. God comes close on this long weekend and says to you, oh, how I love you. How I've done so much Angels came up and down my body on the cross so you would even know who I am. All that John has just declared is true over you. Live out of that place and no other. And when you go and share the good news to others that are hostile or not to the gospel, bring not only your story, but bring Jesus himself and the truths that you know. Because the world is desperate for things like forgiveness, peace, security, love, acceptance, belonging. And Jesus has it all. All of it. Come close. Come close to him. Walk your everyday life out of these truths. And see lies and accusation and power and things that will pass away, lose power in your life, and see greater, more beautiful things emerge. We end this summer with the truth that God is love, and he loved us first. Lord, this is true, all of this. But bringing it home into the middle of a marriage, or into a teenager's view of self-image, or, or to someone in their 80s who have now lived their whole life and are now wrestling with the last part of their life. Or, or someone who has just been through tragedy or someone who's doing very well. See, Lord, the complexity of this thing called life, you get more than us. Here's my prayer. Holy Spirit, draw close. And over the next few days, in this shortened week, Begin to show each person, and I pray this for myself, and I'm not praying this, Lord, because it's the pastor thing to do. I mean this, Lord, show each person what lies they continue to believe that are not true so they can be broken. Begin to speak truth into other people's lives so they'll be deeply encouraged. And give this community such a deep orientation towards the good news that our names are changed and our identity is secure, that when we begin to share the good news with other people, they will know it is not just a Sunday thing, but it is true. 
because we live our life out of a relationship, out of an identity that has been given to us. Well, God, I pray we would not be observers of our time, but as Karl Marx said, we would be the changers of our world. But I pray we would do it in the name of Jesus, who is the answer for every single human longing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.